Hey, welcome to Coffee Room Chronicles. <laughs> welcome back. That's how we started in 2020. Okay. Um, how you doing, Acat? Girl, I'm great. I am back in school. Out here for January term in class, doing my thing. How are you? I'm feeling good. 2020 has brought abundance. That's just a year of vision, and I'm seeing things through. I can't wait for the second half of the year, though. We'll talk about that when we get there. Yes, I love it. Are you manifesting your desires and your intentions? Are you referring back? Yeah, absolutely. So that game that we spoke about, you said the 12 grades. I switched it a little bit. Um, <laughs> plot twist? It, it was a big plot twist. And I will say I'm not encouraging drinking, but do what you need to do. So <laughs> we had, instead of 12 grapes, we had 12 half shots. And so my best friend and I, we sat there. We took our half shots with a follow-up, of course, a chaser. And we spoke about 12 things that we wanted in the new year. So that was really, really fun. And then, of course, at the end of it, we were tipping over. So we had a good time. We had a good time. I love it. I love it. Um, So we are hype right now. Um, We're going to do things a little bit different in the copy room today. Um, We have a guest, y'all. Hey! hey y'all. We have the one and only Astu Chan. Hey! An amazing colleague, sister, friend. Y'all. All of the things. Y'all are in for an absolute treat today. I'm hyping me up a little bit. <laughs> yes. Yes. yes! You know, we're super hyped to have you on the show with us. So, what's the latest copy room tea? What's the what? Um, hmm. I mean, right before break, so this break has been super rejuvenating. Right before break, um, my tea was that I, I got cussed clean out by a parent, <laughs> two parents at parent conferences, and I took it really hard because it was like, sis, I did everything I could for your child. The 66 is not my fault, but she didn't believe me. And so, you know, I had to take that with a grain of salt. I'm back now. I'm back and better. That was my tea. Love it. Love it. Uh, Ika, what's going on in your new copy room? Um, not much yet. You know, I'm just getting my toe wet. Um, so we back at it for the spring semester. I'm at a school in Jamaica Plains in Boston. Um, super excited to work with my new mentor, but things haven't really fully been up and running at my internship yet. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'll keep you guys posted. But this copy room is bigger. It's not the closet I left. So we shall see. Um, one thing that I do want to talk about because it is 2020 and this is something that I'm guilty of, but I'm going to change it in the copy room. Let's stop bringing kids in there. <laughs> let's stop bringing kids in there because you know what? We go in there to take our teacher skin off and we come in there to talk about the kids that are typically sitting in mm-hmm. the copy room. And so this year we're, yeah. if I have to send a kid to get copies, it'll be, I'll ask them to ask first yeah. <laughs> right. so we can have our space that is sacred. Yeah. Um, I love it. So this episode, there has been a lot going on in the Supreme Court, specifically about DACA. And we just wanted to make sure that we had a primary source on here, someone who is near and dear to us, who can give you all of the scoop and firsthand experience about what is going on. So we're introducing our dope dealer one more time. This is someone who is disrupting oppressive practices in education. So Chan, like, what makes you dope? What makes me dope? Y'all put me on the spot. Well, <laughs> <laughs> what makes me dope is I would say my my like pretty unique lens. Um, being a person who is undocumented, has DACA, but is also a teacher. It's also black. Um, and so I think that you know when I when I joined education, I wanted to make an impact on immigrant kids. Um, black kids who grew up in the hood. Um, and so that's how I try to, that's how I approach teaching. And that's what I always try to bring to the forefront of every classroom or every group of kids that I stand in front of. So I tell them I'm undocumented. I tell them I have DACA. And it's always interesting how like, they're like, wait, you mean to tell me you are, you don't have your papers, you're undocumented and you can be a teacher. Um, and those are the moments that like make really make me smile because I think in in those moments you see kids like worlds shift if if it's relevant to them like you know they know that like there are things they're able to access that they wouldn't normally think or they're told by the world that they can't access and you embody that for them uh, so I think that that's that's kind of like what makes me dope. John, how long have you been teaching? 
Uh, this is my fifth year in the classroom. Um, started teaching straight out of college, um, joined a teaching program, and so this is five years. Because I'm like a veteran or whatever. <laughs> whatever. Um, K-Tom and I just wanted to take a moment to just speak to why we feel uh, Chan is dope. Um, I personally have gotten to work really closely with Chan. We were on the same grade level team for two years, and we were homeroom roommates. And I just think Chan is dope. Just, I just admire her so much for her composure and her poise. Um, Chan was one people, one person who like could just, as somebody who was younger than me and who I think of as a little sister, could just gather me and just get me together, keep me in check, but also somebody I could just always vibe with. And I just think you do extremely good work for kids. I think the crusade you're on in regards to like being an advocate for immigrants, I think it's just so admirable. And I think that's truly what makes you dope. And I'm just so grateful to have you as a sister friend, um, a colleague, all of the things. You're just such a wonderful spirit. Thank you, girl. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I think you're dope. We've worked together now for three years and also joined the core at the same time. But you always manage to keep just this, about you and a certain stature about you in front of the kids when you're away from the kids that is admirable specifically because of what you are experiencing outside of the classroom and so that balance and zen that you're able to maintain at all times has me sometimes when I see you in the hallway like how how um and another thing I really appreciate her for like y'all need a person like this I feel like sometimes Y'all ever seen the color purple? And I think <laughs> Whoopi and Oprah at one moment when they yes. look at each other and it's just like, girl, girl. Yes. And so we have those moments in the hallway and I just think she's dope for that and what she does. So she's literally a mirror for our students of what they can become um, in the future. So you need that in the classroom. I'm so happy she's here. Thank you, y'all. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be with y'all too. Yes. 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 Let's dig into it. Yes. So, um, um, can I just put a disclaimer out there real quick? Um, I think often our episodes are really lighthearted and fun. And so I just want to own that this might touch a nerve. It will be deep. Um, but we think that it's time to give an ode and some homage to this topic because it's not only near and dear to our heart because Chan is our friend, but it's also it's 2020 and we're coming up on an election year. And so it's really important and imperative that we have this conversation. Um, so some controversy that we've been getting into in our personal discussions um, is around an article that Chan sent us. And so she sent us an article about a Supreme Court DACA hearing. And so, Chan, can you tell the listeners and us a little bit about that and what's happening? Yeah. Um, and so back in, I want to say like mid-November, um, the Supreme Court uh, started hearing um, arguments for over DACA over its legality, over whether, over basically Donald Trump and his administration um, suing um, to end the program. And so um, by the end of January, they should have um, a decision, um, which will basically decide whether or not people who have DACA, like me, um, get to keep our DACA status um, or, you know, have it taken away, which is what um, the Trump administration would like for it to be. Um, so for some context, DACA was, um, it's an, an executive action, basically, that was created by President Obama in 2012. And so um, in 2012, uh, he decided that he was going to grant a very specific group of immigrants, undocumented immigrants, um, known as the Dreamers, which are young people who were brought to the United States as children, have kind of have grown up here like myself. Um, he granted us a work permission, a work permit, where basically you apply, you show that, you know, you have, you graduated high school, you've never been in trouble, you've been here for consecutive amount of years, you pay your $500, um, you tell them the history, you tell the government really the history of where you've lived, where your parents have lived, and they give you a work permit, um, which if you're undocumented is a game changer. Um, and so what I mean by that is that if you weren't born in the United States, you need written permission from the U.S. government that gives you kind of like permission to live in the United States. So that permission needs to be in the form of a green card, right, like legal permanent residence or um, 
in our case, with what Obama created was a work permit where you have lawful permission to work um, and kind of like live in the United States as you do it. And so basically he granted us this two-year work permit. You renew it every two years, pay your $500, you renew it. Um, and so um, really he created it because Congress that usually overlooks immigration law over, you know, decides over how someone becomes a citizen really was deadlocked where, um, as we are now, right? There, there are groups of folks who don't believe that people who are undocumented deserve to stay, that they need to go back to their country. Um, and then there are other groups of um, legislators who believe that there needs to be some sort of, the laws on the books right now aren't humane, um, and that there needs to be some sort of path to citizenship um, for, for the 11 million undocumented people in the country. And so that's kind of the context of how DACA was created and how I have DACA status. Um, I think something that's happening with the media is that they paint undocumented people as the Latinx community only. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's also very important for us to have this conversation with you. Can you kind of share your experience being undocumented mm -hmm. um, with our listeners and your experience being undocumented and black? Yep. Um, so my experience is, you're, you're definitely right, it, cha it challenges kind of the narrative that all undocumented people are Latinx. Um, my family came from Senegal, West Africa, um, and settled in New York when I was seven. Um, and uh, they initially came with visitors' visas and overstayed, um, so counter like counter the narrative of entering through the border. My family, um, like many West African families or and many families that are not from uh, Central or South America, came kind of like legally, right, um, and overstayed their visa, and that's how they um, that's how we became undocumented. And so um, coming here in the U.S. since I was seven, um, my experience has been unique because I also wasn't fully aware of my status, right? Mm -hmm. For a long time, I thought I was different from the Mexicans, yeah. right? And I'm, I'm saying that not, I'm not proud of how I used to talk about undocumented people and how I used to perceive, um, right, I, I, I other than myself, right? My family came here legally. Um, and so it wasn't until I was doing the college process that I discovered that I also was undocumented. There's no different, like, cast because I entered legally and they didn't. Um, and so what that meant for me was just really struggling to try to access college. Um, for a long time in my life, the expectation was I'm going to go to college, right? Like, my parents came here for that purpose. Um, and so when I was 17 or so, I started the college process. And my first obstacle that like clued me into how um, jacked uh, the immigration system was was when I was being asked for a social and I didn't have one. Um, so I couldn't fill out FAFSA, I couldn't access financial aid. Um, so many of you know that without those systems, really, for a lot of folks, especially poor folks, you can't really access college. Um, so I was unable to fill out FAFSA, was usually um, eliminated or unable to um, apply for most scholarships because they mostly... They most have, most of them have, um, must be a U.S. citizen or a legal permanent resident, like asterisk at the bottom. Um, and so from that process, I, you know, resorted to trying to find a scholarship. From that process, I tried to access private scholarships um, specifically for immigrant and undocumented people. And this is where me being black came into play, um, where I, the few scholarships that I found for undocumented people had qualifications at the time, like, must come from a, must be of Latino descent, must be of Central American or South American descent, um, specifically because the narrative is that undocumented people only come from that region of the world. And so that was really harmful for me because it, it affirmed that I was a minority within a minority, right? Um, I needed help. I needed to kind of, I needed to figure out a way to finance my college education and because I was undocumented and because I was black I wasn't able to access anything and so um my education had to be paid for in cash wow Chan so what was that from what you just said what was that experience like officially finding out you were undocumented right because you say you found out during the college process so I'm assuming you're like 17 maybe 18 years old and you said up until this point, there were just things you didn't know or hadn't thought of. Mm -hmm. And so what was that experience like finding this out for Dika the first time? Mm -hmm. um, looking back at, at it, I think it was 
I mean, it was definitely one of the darkest periods of my life. Uh, I felt so many emotions. I felt a lot of shame. Um, I And I don't know where it came from, right? And this, this is why I think how the media talks about the issue and how we as educators talk about the issue informs our kids because I just felt really ashamed and felt like I was, um, I did something wrong and I didn't deserve help. And so I actually didn't, after trying to ask for help from one educator who told me that, who told me that I can't go to college, right, because of my status, I just went into complete shutdown mode, stopped applying to colleges. Um, I really felt like my life was over, uh, really depressed, really sad, um, and spent a lot of time just, you know, giving up. I just think your story is just really powerful, Chan. I think it's so important to talk about just these false assumptions of immigrants and just what the media portrays. And just for Kate, Tom, and I, our own personal experience with immigration. Like, mm-hmm. Chan is the first person who, like, really put me onto game of just, like, what DACA is, the, the different types of immigrants and documentation that are required. Because for me growing up, my experience with immigration was extremely negative. Mm-hmm. I had a Dominican dad who wasn't really in my life and what I knew to be true of him was he was constantly coming back and forth from DR to the United States and had been deported multiple times due to illegal activity. And so for me, when it came to immigration, it was just like almost a little bit embarrassed by the fact that I knew somebody who could potentially be hindering a group of people's ability to come and stay and do things that are positive um, because that wasn't what he was doing. And I know Chan and I offline have talked about, you know, who knows the reason as to why he made some of the choices that he did. Um, but I think for me growing up and like just hearing how my family talked about him and just like some of the choices he made for me was just my only experience, you know, dealing with, dealing with an immigrant. Um, and I think my experience dealing with immigrants has always been, it played into that narrative that immigrants were part of the Latinx community and that they always had to work under the table. And so what I've known to be true is that a lot of immigrants or Latinx immigrants, they would do carpentry and they can do carpentry because they are extremely skilled with their hands. And so mm-hmm. what I've known is that they were some of the best workers that were out here mm-hmm. and they kept getting deported. But every single time they got deported, they would find their way back. You know what I mean? And so what I've learned is they are resilient, but meeting you literally shifted what Absolutely. I thought about undocumented people because I'm like, wow, there are people who look like me, who speak like me, mm-hmm. who are also undocumented. And so, like, you definitely threw seasoning on me. <laughs> like, learning, you know, culturing me about that. Okay. And so I do want to speak to this resilience of undocumented people, mm-hmm. right? So, like, what has... How have you been resilient in this process or your family has? Mm -hmm. Um, I think, I think for me, my resilience came from, you know, I talked about like initially when I found out about being undocumented, it was almost like I was on autopilot, like in the state of having given up and feeling like my life is over and feeling like, okay, I'm doomed. I can't go to college. Um, and it was this interaction with this woman from, um, Hunter College that kind of snapped me out of it, where she was like, sure, you can still come. Um, and so I've been extremely fortunate to have just met people at the right time who were willing to give me an opportunity. Um, I've been fortunate to have a president that saw me, right, like the young dreamers who came here through no fault of their own, saw kids like me and thought we were worthy of a chance and an opportunity. Um, But also I've been fortunate to see the, you know, people with DACA are only 800,000 out of the 11 million or so. And so I grew up in a family with the other, right? The oftentimes, you know, when I think about my mama and I think about like, you know, I think about my uncles and my aunties who are also undocumented and who, they don't get the benefit of um, they're the good immigrants. They're the deserving ones, right? According to a lot of the narratives, they're the ones who broke the law. 
Um, and so, right, they're the ones who are more criminalized than the dreamers, um, which, which I benefit from and which is why I have DACA and they have nothing. Um, but I, I saw resilience from them, too, growing up. Um, my mom worked every day. Um, and when she became a single mom, she worked at a restaurant and she was often exploited, um, mistreated left and right. And she still found the strength to get up every day and to go to work for her children. Um, the, my first year of college, there was no DACA. Mm -hmm. And so my mom was a single mom of three girls and she paid cash for my first like year of college because I couldn't work legally. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think that she has resilience too. And that's why I cringe a little bit when people talk about, you know, or they paint people like me with DACA as the good ones or the only ones who contribute. Um, where I think my mom contributed to this country. She's honest. She works hard. She's worked every day of her life to support and provide a better opportunity for her kid. She risked coming to a new country that from jump didn't want her so that her children could have access to education and could have a better life. And so I think that those immigrants also are incredibly resilient, probably more so because they've been doing this thing without DACA for a long time. And speaking of DACA, um, what would be kind of some of the social and emotional traumas and impacts of rescinding DACA? Man, I, I think it would be felt throughout the country. Um, so right now about 800,000 people have DACA. Um, and you know, we, we have a diversity of careers. I'm a teacher, right? And I, I teach 90 kids a year. And so for me, when I think about rescinding DACA, I think, I'm not being dramatic when I say my life would be over because I would literally not even be able to go to work. I wouldn't be able to teach. I would I would have to leave the classroom, but I really wouldn't be able to um, work in any other capacity than under the table, maybe working at a restaurant, right? These industries that allow people to work under the table, but often leave them very exposed to just being um, exploited. Right. So your employer could pay you at whatever rate they want. They could, you know, they could decide you have to work on X day, you name it. Um, so I feel like personally that would kind of like shift my world upside down. But also I think about the impact of rescinding DACA being that one day my kids, my students would have a teacher and the next day they wouldn't. You know, where's Miss Chung? Um, or where's so and so, right? Where is my neighbor? Where is my parent? that um, has, you know, America's their home. They've been here. They've been able to provide me stability for my entire life because they had work authorization and because they had DACA, and now it's gone. Um, so I think that the impact would be far more widespread than a lot of the folks who are trying to rescind it give it credit for. Which I think, Chan, you speak to the fact that now we have DACA recipients having children who are U.S.-born citizens. Mm -hmm. And so the impact of rescinding and then now you're literally turning households upside down, mm -hmm. right? Because you have these families of mixed status and families who have been able to work for all these years. America's all that they know. You rescind DACA. Where do these people go? Mm -hmm. What is the plan? Where, like, it's just, it just creates so much uncertainty mm -hmm. that that's going to leave for sure traumatic impact yeah yeah and we talk about like just re a lot of researchers have started looking into post-traumatic stress with kids who come from families where a relative is detained or a relative is deported um and we see that come up in the classroom through right all of a sudden they're misbehaving or all of a sudden they're apathetic about um their schooling or you know we're just seeing a difference in the behaviors that we see um from them and it's definitely a response to this type of trauma right it's definitely a response to one day having a family member be there and the next day they're gone and you have no really they have no recourse to getting them back um so i think it's it's definitely going to be um a big it's going to be wild widely so how crucial do you think is this next election? Um, I think it's, I don't know, I wouldn't know how to say it. It's very crucial. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I think I've, I have friends who, you know, are of the belief, and I certainly get it within America's history of, like, white supremacy. I know that our government isn't the most 
it's sometimes shady, right? Like a lot of folks don't feel like their votes count um, and they don't want to participate or have anything to do with our political system because of what our political system has done to black and brown people and to poor people for generations. Um, but with all that being said, I think that these elections matter. Um, and so for me, um, I was really disheartened by people who were, who I was close to or people who I was friendly with and finding out in 2016 that they didn't vote. Mm. Right. And I, and I have the privilege of living in New York. It's a blue state. Yeah. I'm gonna let you rock. <laughs> Hillary, Hillary had the blue state. But if you live in a swing state and you have a person like Donald Trump who ran on ending DACA, right, who ran on deporting, mass deporting 11 million people, breaking apart families, this is what he said he was going to do. And so imagine, like, I was devastated when this person won. Um, I felt like I felt a betrayal from, you know, people who I was close to, too, because it's like, you know, maybe you are not directly impacted. I had one one friend, he said, you know, um, no president ever made a difference in the hood where I live. Mm. And I think that that's real, um, especially for, you know, folks who've been here for generations. But also, uh, this president has made a difference for immigrants. He said he was going to break apart families. He said he was going to rescind DACA, and he's done just that. Um, he's enacted policy after policy to... Um, make it that much more difficult for immigrant people in this country. And so I feel like I get it, you know, like I said, this electoral process, there's a lot to be said that's wrong with it, but I feel like these elections are especially crucial, especially for folks who live in swing states, where you could be the deciding factor between whether we have a president who is um, friendly and, and treats immigrants humanely and, and one that is doing exactly what Trump is doing now. Um, so I think it's important to, you know, recognize that and demonstrate allyship for immigrant folks. Um, even if you don't feel like, okay, this one vote's not gonna make a difference for me, but there are a bunch of brown people like me who probably experienced similar situations like me who will definitely be impacted. So I'm gonna go and vote for them. As a DACA recipient, can you vote, Sean? No. So you can only vote if you're a US citizen. Um, and so it, it, it was interesting. I turned 18 and I was like, I was a government major. I was a law and society major in high school. So I've always really been interested in like governing and politics. Um, and so I remember when I, you know, became of age to vote and everyone around me was participating in the political process. And it felt really um, disheartening to not be able to participate because for me, I feel like it's it's a right that you have, right? Like it's a duty that you have to participate um, and let your voice be heard. And unfortunately, undocumented people or people who are not U.S. citizens don't have that chance. I think a big misconception that a lot of us have is that undocumented people are coming here just to like, oh, take our jobs or just come here and take up space. But I don't think people really realize why undocumented people would leave the country that they love mm -hmm. to come here. So can you kind of yeah. like speak to that? Yeah, um, it's that's that sentiment is one that's always wild to me. Like, it's like, why do y'all think somebody would leave everything they know to come to a country that is hostile and openly hostile mm. towards them? Um, and you know, I think we live in America, right? It's one of the the the, the powers of the world, if not the power of the world, and. For me, the truth about it is that America has become this world power off the backs of these places that we've destabilized in order to get our wealth. Mm. So people in Central America, right, and, and our policies as a country in Latin America have exploited and made that place unlivable for people. So now they're seeking refuge. Mm. My family's from Senegal, West Africa. There's a whole legacy of colonialism globally that and imperialism that America has participated in. And so... I feel like these people not running to us to, to get a better life for no reason. And honestly, we took part in destabilizing where they come from. They don't have much because we took it. Mm. And so maybe... Come on, Chango. Oh, right? You know, this is it gets me upset. <laughs> I'm like, they don't have much because they we took it. And so maybe we have a responsibility to try to find a way for them. And maybe we should not turn them away when they're seeking refuge from things that we played a part in as a nation. And when we talk about reparations, this is prime examples yeah. of reparations, we right? To get ourselves together. Yeah, we've we've done a lot 
And I think that it's definitely not humane nor compassionate to look at immigrants now who are just trying to survive, right? Um, and look at them and treat them with the way that we have been. Which is also interesting because if we really think about the foundation of America, right? The people who are in power are not from here. Mm-mm. So how, right, in this day and age, can you now tell someone, well, you can't come? Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. No, so let me tell you this quick story, right? <laughs> so over the break, um, I was in D.C. for a couple of days, and I finally had a chance to go to the African uh, History and Culture Museum in D.C. Ooh, talk about it. No, it's, it's a whole experience. Like, you need to make a whole week of it yeah. because mm-hmm. it's so rich in content. One and on one day, for sure. It yeah. was I have never been to a museum curated as well as this one yeah. with content and video and all of the things. But in relation to what we're talking about, uh, one of the exhibits kind of walks us through the creation of the United States and sort of like the laws that have been passed that, you know, just built this system of racism. Right. And so as a history teacher, I was like completely geeking out. And I just think about many of our founding fathers were not here. They were not Native American. I repeat, they were not Native American, yeah. right? They are coming from Europe and these European countries. And it's just like we literally have history showing that when it wasn't African people that we were discriminated against, it was Germans. And before the Germans, it was the Italians. And so just to have a country built the way that it is and how quick we are to forget yeah. And constantly want to negate people's right to be here. And you built this country off their backs, their yeah. blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah. Right? Or moved an entire population of people further and further west to, against their will to create this dominance and power. And I just feel like, as much as I love this country and I'm grateful for it because of the privileges that it does provide, I just think with many of these issues like racism and immigration, we just fail to like look in the mirror and look at who we are and look at just where we've come from. Because I think if we really took a a moment to really reflect and really thought about the humanity of people and why they're choosing to come here, I think we would make better choices. Mm-hmm. And I think the law would look a little bit different. It would. Um, so now when I think about like professional development, so we've had the discussion about DACA, we've had this discussion about your journey as an undocumented citizen. And so, as a professional development for educators and non-educators, how can we support undocumented educators and students? Um, I think the support comes in multiple ways. Um, But I think as folks in the classroom, one of the ways that we can be most supportive um, is just talking about the issue. Uh, I think it's incredible when, you know, ICE has done a raid local to you. Um, and, you know, kids have been impacted. Kids know these things have happened, right? And you come into a classroom and your teacher's not speaking about it, right? Which also sends a message. Absence, I mean, silence is definitely sends a message. And so what does it mean to me that my teacher, my community is under attack and I come to a space where my teacher does not acknowledge that um, or discuss or even hold space for me to just, you know, articulate how I feel or what I'm experiencing. And so I think um current events is important like I know we got all those standards to teach or whatever but like and I teach ELA so I know that I have some privilege because it's ELA Mm -hmm. but you can teach ELA um and you can teach your standards and you can um teach whatever it is that you need to teach and still hold space for these conversations to happen so whether that's you framing your little math problems with people trying to I don't know, organize for a petition or whatever, right? Like, we got to get creative, and it's definitely a challenge. But I think we have to have this issue, whole space for this issue to be discussed in our classroom with our kids. Um, secondly, though, I think we have to teach our, our kids how to talk about this issue in a humane way. So I think the language is, is extremely powerful in facilitating allyship among our kids because, you know, I've, I've been in spaces where I've come out to kids and said, Ms. Chan's undocumented, Ms. Chan has DACA. Um, and, um, you know, kids are like illegal. And, you know, they use it. It's not their fault. It's on TV, left and right, right? But um, I think whenever we hear kids talking about it, and adults, because I've heard whole teachers use illegal immigrant 
um, or illegal alien. When you hear these, la- like the language, you have to check it also because no human being is illegal. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to reduce someone's entire existence to being a criminal? When they're trying to survive and they've made a, a group of choices that they believe will position them in a way to survive and have greater chances of sur- survival. Um, rather than saying undocumented, which is literally what it, what it says. You don't have the paperwork, but it doesn't reduce your whole existence to just being unworthy. And, and then we don't have kids internalizing that like I did, right? Which kind of like kept me from asking for help and kept me for a long time. And I decolonized my mind in like college. But for <laughs> a long time, I felt a lot of shame and just guilt um, about my status. Um, and then finally, the last two points I'll make is, you know, like I said, we said before, the power of voting, right? Um, I think if folks who folks who sh- care about this issue or who actually knew this issue would have went out and voted, we would have had a completely different president. And we, we wouldn't even be having this conversation about the Supreme Court hearing his case for ending DACA if he were not the president, right? And we wouldn't have the reality of them likely deciding to end DACA because they wouldn't have the majority if he hadn't appointed the justice who would give them the majority. So I, I, you know, I, again, am hesitant to say that votes don't count. Like, that's not entirely true. In this way, with this issue, it does count. So I think if you have immigrant folks, if you are social justice-minded, if you care about reparations and, and working towards ending global white supremacy, then you have a responsibility to go out and vote. Um, because this is impacting people's lives. Um, And then finally, I would just say um, it's really important as educators for us to do our work in figuring out and becoming educated about this issue, right? Um, Figuring out what local nonprofits exist. What are your local state laws on undocumented immigrants? Are they friendly towards them? Are they not? Um, In case you have a student who comes and tells you, hey, like my mom didn't come home last night. Right. Or my mom or X, Y and Z person is in detention. Um, what can I do when you're armed with the knowledge, when you're armed with the resources, you're just better able to think through emergency plans, think through and how to really support kids um, and families in a way that if you are sitting there not really knowing what's going on, you won't be able to do in the same way. I also think you made a good point, Chan, in terms of language and verbiage, um, because so much of what has prevented people from sort of earning these pathways to citizenship is time. And so because it's taking so long, right? I have a classmate of mine who's Mexican-American and it took her grandmother 18 years to become a naturalized citizen. Mm -hmm. So in her having to wait that long, where was the crime in that? When it was the country and our inability to create a pathway that was humane and that was realistic. Right. And realistic and not for nothing, these applying to become a citizen, everything costs money. Right? So there's this myth that, you know, immigrants are sucking up our resources, are contributing nothing. For me, um, my DACA application is five hundred dollars every single time. Right? I still get um social security tax, Medicare pulled from my checks. I still get everything pulled from my checks and if I died tomorrow um, or if I got sick tomorrow I would not be able to collect on any of that so undocumented people can't actually collect social security they can't collect on um, you know the things that are pulled from our checks so it's like who's exploiting who right if I paid for a service if I'm waiting so your friend because um, there are these huge backlogs black backlog because our government's really not very efficient if I paid because I have a, a legal case under your laws to become a citizen, and you have a 13-year wait list for me, right? Like, that's unacceptable. So it's it's also, like, thinking through who's also exploiting who and who's benefiting from having this many people constantly in this cycle of trying to get access to a resource that we're denying. Yeah, and I think one more point, too, that I just thought about in terms of the election piece and voting I just want to give some people context of the last four years of Trump becoming president, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, in his presidency thus far, he has been able to appoint a Supreme Court justice. 
he has been able to literally set an entire country ablaze in terms of their feelings and sentiment towards a group of people in a way that I don't feel like we've seen in a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, enact ICE raids and just, you know, do kind of what he wants with Department of Homeland Security, right? And so I feel like people need to really be cognizant of what actions, big and small, have been a result of this election. So for people who say, oh, my vote doesn't count, I'm from a blue state, it doesn't matter, I think we need to, again, I'm Re-evaluate. probably because of Harvard and all the reflecting it makes yeah. us do. I'm like, <laughs> okay, I'm like, people need to just sit down and really reflect as like kind of how far we've come in these four years and like what has happened and transpired. And if not for you, at least for somebody else mm-hmm. who can't. Yeah. Always be an ally. So we just want to make sure that our listeners have some key takeaways because at the end of the day, we are educators and we have to summarize. Okay. So people have tangible things to walk away with. So number one. <laughs> number one, current events and keeping the conversation going. The greatest thing we could do is build awareness and put kids onto game of what's really going on um, with this situation. Number two, language and verbiage is everything. If we're going to talk about immigration, let's do it in a way that is acid-based thinking and not deficit thinking. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to continue to perpetuate stereotypes and assumptions Mm -hmm. by calling somebody an illegal alien when in reality, they just need paperwork. Um, Number three, um, advocacy, right? What are the local organizations that are in your state or in your city that are really working to just sort of crusade, you know, this immigration process and policies. Um, Because again, you never want to be in a situation where a child confides in you in terms of like, my parents didn't come home last night, or my neighbor, I don't know what's going on with them, um, etc. And we have to be able to have some answers to be able to support them. Mm-hmm. And, um, Chan, did I miss anything? No. Say go vote. Go vote. You better go vote. Go y'all. vote. And also, in terms of plugging voting, it's not about just voting in federal elections. You have local and state elections that are just important, yeah. right? I just think about back in 08 with Diddy's whole Rock the Vote campaign <laughs> and like how many people turned up and showed out that year in a way to like vote, right? And just the power that that has, but it's not really about voting for the next president. It's about voting for your next senator and your next congressman mm-hmm. or your assemblywoman. Right. Um, because those are the folks who can actually change our immigration laws, mm-hmm. right? We're not talking about just DACA. We're talking about comprehensive immigration reform that's needed for all 11 million people, not just those who are who were kids when they were brought here. And only through voting, I'm going to establish that. And let me just geek out really quick on a history lesson. So Chan mentioned a lot of where our laws are created is through the legislative branch. At the federal level, we have about 435 Congress people or representative, and we have 100 senators. That's only at the federal level. We come down to the state level. That's about another maybe 200 folks who are in government, right? And so we really got to be cognizant of the power of voting because we live in a democracy and people's terms do come to an end. And we allow for people to be in power, like incumbent, right? Who are like there for years and years and years. And we're not doing nothing and we need to flip (laughs) their seats. Good day. Good night. I think one more thing we have to think about when we go to the polls to vote, a lot of us, let's be honest, okay, we vote in a straight line, right? And so we're like, well, I'm going to just pick these people because they names sound good and they're a Democrat or we can't do that. I think what's very important this year for the rest of our lives is really finding out what these people's platforms are and doing the research so that we can be informed voters. And that's going to be imperative moving forward. And so in thinking about that, we're moving on to teachable moments. And so Chan and I went to Texas this summer. And y'all know flights can get crazy, especially when you're waiting on that long ass line uh-huh. to get to your flight. Uh-huh. And so I have TSA pre-check. 
And I'm just like going on and on about it. Like, listen, y'all need to get this. Y'all need to get TSA pre-check because y'all don't have to wait on the line. But in my ignorance, I didn't realize that that's not something that someone who is undocumented can have access to. And so I think that taught me to be mindful of my privileges and get cultured because in that moment, Chan just taught me a lot about what people who are undocumented have access to and what they don't have access to. Um, for me, my teachable moment uh, came actually right after, the day after the election. So, I don't know, that day, I feel like my mom was like, has something come over her? Like, what's wrong with her? Because I just, I've, I've never remembered crying for 24 hours straight. Um, for me, like I said, I've always been a believer in like, government and its power and I think I would even say I had like aspirations to be a part of government um and on that day I felt completely blindsided by Trump's win and really saw it as felt in many ways that my my country had betrayed me and so I could I was hysterical so I didn't go to work um called out I was like I I can't stop crying I can't show up and trigger all these children they probably all scared um, let me stay my ass home and get myself together. <laughs> Sent my little email, told my principal I wasn't coming. And even even then, I think the reaction was, you know, it's, it was like, you're being dramatic. Like, it's going to be fine. It's like, no, it's, it doesn't feel like it's going to be fine. So I'm going to take the day. To, I need a mental health day to get myself mm-hmm. together. But I remember when I came back to work the, that, the day after, um, and I, you know, my kids came up for their lockers and they saw me, they're like, oh, Miss Chan, you're here. We thought they took you. Like, it's, it's all right. So we're not, we're not going to let nobody do nothing to you. Like who you need us to write to, who you need, where you need us to go. It's not about to go down like that. Right. And you know, we're in the middle of Harlem and these kids are ghetto fabulous and I love <laughs> it, but they were ghetto fabulous and allies yeah. in that moment. Right. Like they, and you know, I taught, um, those were African-American kids not kids of immigrants um these are kids who have been here and who are not directly threatened in in the way that um i felt right or in the way that immigrants were threatened um and they were ready to show up for immigrants um because you know i shared my story and because they had learned about this issue and they they had they had the privilege of a teacher who held space to teach them um about all of what we just discussed and so for me that moment was um affirming to just our power as educators to really like shape and mold hearts and minds maybe they are those are going to be the kids who decide they're going to run for 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 office or they're going to have positions of power and because of those conversations they had in the eighth grade they might decide that for the rest of their lives they're going to be committed to working towards immigrants um so that was my teachable moment talk to your kids they're not too young they can be they can be allies as well um i have two of course the most per usual um so my first one uh thanks to chana she's gonna crack up when she hears this but i look at butterflies different oh yeah because chan put me onto the monarch butterfly and i had no idea the like correlation or like what that meant and so now when i see butterflies i look at them completely different um and you know it just means something um and i think the second thing is really about vulnerability as educators or just public servants, right? And just the power of a story and the power of when you share that story, how you've now just made somebody feel a little bit better and affirm them and see them for who they are. And I think the more we're vulnerable and share our stories, I think it will allow people to see the humanity, Mm -hmm. right? Sometimes we just do things extremely impulsively Right, laws get made because we know how DC works and we just know the just game of politics and just all of what that is. But I think if we heard more stories and it would allow us to see the humanity in people. Um this has been very, very deep, but I think it's been impactful. We've learned so much and I'm touched. Have learned so <laughs> much. But in doing all of this, one thing that you have always been able to do is maintain this, like, sense of poise. And so, like, mm-hmm. in our final segment, how do you keep yourself well? How do I keep myself well? Um, so, uh, one of the things that I think I've had the privilege of seeing modeled for me by my mom um, is just 
is not allowing people in power to take away your joy. Um, so my mom has lived an incredibly difficult life, but she's also lived an incredibly joyous life where she's taught me, like, it's going to be all right. Like, we will find a way because we're people who always found a way. Um, on the night of the election, and when I called out, she was like telling me, listen, girl, it's hard, but we stand on the shoulders of giants. No piece of paper, no president, no, um, no thing can break you because if you allow someone to break your spirit, you're done. Um, and so I've really tried to live my best life, um, and not allow Donald Trump <laughs> to take my joy. So that means I can't travel outside of the country. I'm going to go to every city in the in, in America and live my best life. I'm going to okay. make sure that I'm laughing and I'm having full experiences. And sometimes that means that I'm taking my space and I'm protecting myself and not um, broadcasting my trauma just for, you know, just for the sake of it. Um, that has been really helpful to me in maintaining and, um, and feeling full. Um, but also I've also benefited from being in therapy for the past, I want to say, three or so years, right? Um, I see someone where I literally, Cat will tell you, last year I was like, do not schedule me for no meeting on a Monday <laughs> after four. I'm going to see Dr. Khan. She said what she said. It's sacred, okay? Um, and before Dr. Khan, I had another therapist who I was seeing, um, and, you know, it's all about finding the right fit. Um, this That therapist, I was with her during the 2016 uh, election and you know she, I had felt a lot of anxiety leading up to you know the election of Trump and I kind of was feeling like it's gonna happen it's gonna happen and you know everyone in my life was like no you're tripping you're being extra like stop worrying this can't happen and then it happened um, and so I remember going to therapy um, after and like you know crying and then having my therapist crying and feeling bad um, but it it was it was weird because it's like you are my therapist, right? Um, and, you know, she was a white woman and she had the white woman tears and I was really resentful of that because then I went and started taking care of her mm. in our therapy session that I'm paying a whole... What's the, what's the thing? You know when you pay them? Out of pocket? Yeah, like the... A deductible? The deductible. <laughs> I'm paying you to take care of you. And, and you're over here like crying. Have, right? Yeah, you crying, you a whole thing. It's going to be all right. And these white women... <laughs> like let's talk about it 85 percent which y'all yeah. did yeah and so she had to go and i found a new and that's therapist. another episode i'm glad you sent her to the door <laughs> i had to send her to the door kindly but i had to send her <laughs> to the door and you know i've had dr kind since and you know we talk and she gets me together but that's my space to fall apart um because i don't know what mechanism it is in me that like people be like oh you're so poised and it's like i do need to fall apart and i've have the privilege of having a space where I can have that because if I didn't I don't think I would be together at all mm. I mean y'all y'all <laughs> this was an experience this yes everything so Chan thank you so much for stepping into the coffee room it has been an absolute honor thank you guys for having me and a privilege me. yes and I thank you for bringing seasoning on us yeah. Um, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Yes, we love you. This is shout out to just our sister friend for just coming through and being vulnerable. And thank y'all for listening. Yeah, We are always happy to have you. Hit us up. All right. We getting it on and popping in this 2020. Be great. Yeah. See y'all later. Bye. Bye. Bye.